0: I started my day, um, as I often do, in a quite a disturbing way by looking in the mirror. Um, and this morning it was extra disturbing because I noticed I, I had a, I picked up a tick yesterday walking through the canyon, and it was breakfasting on my arm. Um, and, and then I thought, well, you know, if I start my day this way, it can only get better from here. <laughs> then I remembered mail call. <laughs> so in that spirit, I have another haiku to uh, offer you. A thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, mail call in Corinth. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that it may go downhill from here actually, folks. so <laughs> take a look uh, with me at First Thessalonians chapter four, if we orient ourselves with... Uh, The outline that I offered, there's a a significant turning point in the letter that we have reached. Paul has spent much of the first half of the letter giving thanks for what God has done and is continuing to do as he rehearses the Thessalonians' own history and particularly his story with them. And um, at the end of chapter 3, Paul offers a prayer that also points forward toward the second half of his letter, which takes up a number of topics that um, bring home what following the example of Paul and of the Lord will look like in the Thessalonians' particular context here and now. Um, We're always left with the letter trying to reconstruct the other part of the conversation, the other half of it, but... Paul has has made it clear, even as he um, enters into this section of the letter, that he's responding most recently to Timothy's good report. Timothy's return, having spent time with the Thessalonians, um, coming back to report their faith and their labor of love and their hope. Um, Timothy probably has also offered Paul some perspective on issues that the Thessalonians are particularly Struggling with now, um, as fairly young believers, as a fairly new community. So, fittingly, Paul makes the transition by looking to God. He says in chapter 3, verse 11, May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Paul's letter is just a substitute for an upcoming visit. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we abound in love for you. And may God so strengthen your hearts in holiness, that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. But Paul's exhortation has in view the coming of the Lord Jesus, this God who has called them into his kingdom and glory is not leaving them orphans. But Jesus, now in heaven, will return again in glory, to establish justice, to redeem his oppressed people. And Paul's prayer is that they would continue to endure in faith and in hope and in love. In fact, that they would abound in love, that their love would increase and overflow more and more. And that their manner of life would be one that Uh, befits their new identity as God's people. Life of dedication to God, of holiness, and conduct that is blameless when Jesus Christ uh, appears with all of God's holy people. The language of holiness is quite dense, then, in the passage that follows. And um, Paul begins by, once again, pointing backward to the time he has spent with them. So I'll go ahead and um, just read the first. Uh, let me read the, the whole 12 verses here that we're going to look at this morning so you can see, um, even as we take it apart, that it fits together. You can see from the outline that Paul has a number of topics that he will talk about here through the rest of the letter. Um, in the second session today, we're going to talk about Paul's teaching on uh, the, the return of Christ and on. The, particularly handling the question about what what about those who have died uh, before the Lord returns. So, starting at verse 1 in chapter 4. Finally, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you learned from us how you ought to live and to please God, as in fact you are doing, you should do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, Your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication, that each one of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one wrong or exploit a brother or sister in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, just as we have already told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God did not call us to impurity, but in holiness." Therefore, whoever rejects this rejects not human authority, but God, who also gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning love of the brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anyone write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, beloved, to do so more and more, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we directed you, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. A number of of, um, things pop out immediately to me in this passage. One of them is how often Paul refers to God. In these 12 verses, God or the Lord Jesus are mentioned eight times. It's also striking how often Paul refers to things he has already said to them, things he has taught or things that they have learned from him, not just from his teaching, but from his lifestyle. And Paul has, in fact, rehearsed some of that earlier in chapter 2, reminding them of his pattern of life. He, again, is a teacher who's not simply offering precepts to follow, but is modeling them, is embodying them in his own conduct. Um, Paul earlier emphasized that the message that they received, they received as God's word. And in fact, God's power accompanying that message, the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, the deep conviction, the power that accompanied the preaching and the transformation of life, all evidence that this message is from God. Similarly, Paul's ethical instructions are an outgrowth of that message. They also are... The instructions of the Lord, they are God's will for God's people. Paul emphasized earlier in the letter that he was seeking not to please human beings, but to please God as he conducted himself in blamelessness and purity among them. Now he reminds them that their goal as well is to seek to please God here in verse 1. You learned from us how you ought to live and to please God as in fact you are doing. Uh, One of the the beautiful things about this letter, as I've mentioned earlier, is that that Paul is offering exhortation to a community that's on the right track. It doesn't appear that there are are many places where Paul needs to set something right. Instead, he's trying to help further impel them along the path that they're already walking. And why they are walking this path, um, the reason for that, Paul attributes to God. Notice how he says uh, in verse 9, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. You don't need for me to write to you about this. A um, nice rhetorical move, because, of course, he does write to them about it. Um, we urge you to do so more and more. But the love implanted in the community is a love, Paul says, that comes from God. He may even be coining a word here, Um we, ha- we talk about autodidacts, people who learn on their own without teachers. And, in fact, people, um, Some of the the moral philosophers that we hear about, cynics in particular, claim to have learned all of their wisdom from nature rather than from a human teacher. Paul, on the other hand, says, no, it's God, God who's taught you, God who is teaching you. And if he's thinking of a scriptural passage here, it may well be Isaiah 54, 13, where um, in speaking about the redemption of Zion, the rebuilding of the city, Uh, The prophet says, all of you, all of your sons and daughters will be taught by God. Um, Jesus quotes this in John's Gospel. It's a passage that um, looks forward to a time that Jeremiah spoke of where God's law would be implanted in the hearts of God's people so that their conduct came out of of a center of being renewed by and empowered by God. So Paul is writing to a community that knows God. He's contrasted them, in fact, with those outsiders, those Gentiles, the nations who don't know God. They know God because they've turned from their idols to the living and true God. They know God because God is the one who supplies them with the Spirit. So he's writing to a community that knows God, a community that has been called by God, a community that has been called by God into God's own kingdom, with a different set of loyalties, with a different orientation, with a different pattern of life. And um, Paul will contrast how they are to behave with how others, outsiders, do, but his focus isn't on criticizing the outside world. Uh, For that, you have to go to Romans 1, for example, where, like other Hellenistic Jews, Paul very clearly links idolatry and immorality of all sorts. And not just immorality of the body, but social disorders, factions and dissensions and anger and wrath and family disturbances like disobedience to parents, all, all sorts of terrible things that happen because human beings have turned away from God to those beings which are not God's. But here Paul's focus is not on the boundaries so much as on the center, Missionary anthropologist Paul Hebert has described two sorts of groups. Uh, one he describes as, as a bounded set, a group that's really concerned with maintaining the boundaries, keeping the walls up, knowing where the lines are between insiders and outsiders. second kind of group he calls a centered set. That is, it's a group that also has boundaries, but it has boundaries precisely because it's focused on a very particular center. And I think that's the kind of group we see Paul talking to and seeking further to form here. Uh, This language of holiness, language that comes uh, from Paul's own Jewish heritage, from Scripture, from the self-identification of the people of Israel, Uh, it is a sense of separateness, of distinctness, but it's precisely a separateness because of a calling to be God's people. In order to be God's people, one must turn away from idols. In order to belong to God and keep God's gracious covenant, one turns away from all the things that would tear us away from the life of God. And so Paul speaks here, very frankly, um, about instructions, precepts, things that we gave to you, he says, through the Lord Jesus, Instructions which are, in fact, God's will for you, which are based on God's authority, not simply on human teaching. What has God done? How does God's action underlie what Paul has to say here about how we use our bodies? So I've said, He's spoken throughout the letter about their turning to God, about God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Notice that in verse 7, he returns to the language of calling. God did not call us to impurity, but to holiness. God has called us to holiness. God has created that holiness in calling us to be God's people. And in verse 8, God is the one who continues to give his own Holy Spirit to you. God has called us to holiness, and God continues to dwell among us through his Holy Spirit. How would we not then be called to a life of holiness? Uh, My own tradition, the Wesleyan tradition, has um, particular branches that have grown up that have in fact been called the holiness tradition. And some of my earliest experiences with that tradition were not particularly attractive ones. And it's easy to caricature um, a focus on holiness as sliding into self-righteousness or sliding into the kind of a burdensome moralistic preaching that simply piles up obligations and traps people in their own failure. Uh, it's actually not unlike the way New Testament scholars and Popular preachers have often characterized Judaism of Paul's day, this lifeless legalism. But, you know, you start reading the texts from the Second Temple period, and especially the texts that they're rooted in in Scripture, and you realize this is not what holiness has meant when the community gets it right. Holiness is a beautiful calling. It's a calling to fellowship with God. And I think about Psalm 19 um, the law of the Lord is, is light, is gold, is sweet honey. It brings life and enlightenment and, and straight paths to walk. I, I was uh, thinking this morning of one of the, the psalms that got turned into a song, I think, uh, in the 70s that speaks about the beauty of God's holiness. Uh, Psalm 96, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the beauty of His holiness. Tremble before Him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established; it cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice; let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all of the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in justice and the peoples in his faithfulness. Think about going on a walk yesterday and just being awed again by the trees here. Uh, I went down into the, the riverbed and look up even uh, even higher at the trees on the hill, um, and just was struck with the beauty of this world, which the Psalms tell us is, is just a glimpse of the beauty of God. A beauty that Israel experienced coming to the temple and its grandeur and its majesty, again, just spoke... Um, in a a dim figure of the bright beauty of God's own being, God's own person. And Israel is invited into that holiness. The temple, the sacrificial system, the precepts for life together in community and family, all of that is designed to enable access to this God of beauty. And so the early Christians understand holiness to be a life-giving calling, a calling that allows us to have our deepest desire for beauty and connection and fulfillment met by our Creator, met by God. The, um, the Christian idea of, of the ultimate goal of life as the vision of God, to see God as God is, to have our, our eyes purified, our souls purified, so that we might behold God. Um, this beatific vision as the ultimate end and goal of human existence that makes us fully human Um, that I think is all encapsulated in this idea of holiness it's a centered calling to come to God means to abandon anything else that keeps us from the life that God offers us in fellowship with him and with one another and I think that's the context in which then to hear this sharp language about those who don't know God and those whose lives are disordered and fragmented, who run after other things that offer a promise of pleasure, a promise of fulfillment, a promise of connection, and don't deliver. It's a passage in Jeremiah 2 that um, has stuck with me since I was a teenager. This image that the prophet has where God laments over his people. He says, My people have committed two sins, They've carved for themselves broken cisterns that don't hold any water, having turned away from me the fountain of living water. Um, God invites us into life. God invites us to share his own holiness. And God also empowers our turning and empowers our continual turning toward, and pursuit of that holiness. Because the Holy Spirit dwells among us. probably are very familiar with Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians. Not only are our bodies individually, but our corporate body is a dwelling of the Holy Spirit, a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so what we do with our bodies matters. 1 Corinthians 6 is often held up as a parallel to this, Um, where Paul is in particular talking to men in the congregation, and perhaps elite men in particular who have power and prestige, um, but who don't have any trouble continuing life in some respects the way they've always lived. He raises in particular um, the issue of going to prostitutes. NRSV here has fornication as the translation of porneia, but it's a much wider term. But in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is particularly talking to men in the congregation. The Greco Roman world famously had a double standard. Um, adultery was sleeping with a married woman, but or a married woman sleeping with anyone else than her husband, but married men, single men, could sleep with unattached women. In fact, John Chrysostom, in his homily on this section of 1 Thessalonians, spends a lot of his time exhorting the older and the younger men in his church in in 4th century Antioch, Christians who continue to think that there's a double standard in terms of sexual fidelity. Um, But in 1 Corinthians 6, the argument that Paul develops is one that bears a strong resemblance to the argument here because the entire argument is centered on the new life that they have in Christ. And so he says, don't you realize your body belongs to the Lord? You've been bought with a price. You're not your own. But the good news is not that you're a slave, but that you're a slave of God to this master who desires your flourishing, who will redeem your mortal body. That's his second argument, actually. Our body is destined for resurrection. God will transform our mortal bodies into the image of Christ's Glorious body, Paul says in Philippians. A further argument that Paul brings forward in 1 Corinthians 6 is not only do we belong to the Lord, we belong to one another. We're members of Christ's body. What we do in our bodies affects others. It affects the health of the body. And Paul mentions this as well in 1 Thessalonians 4. No one should wrong or exploit. This is economic language. Don't defraud someone, not just anyone, but a brother or sister in a matter like this. Don't destroy and take advantage of the family relationships that we have in Christ by your conduct. Paul looks to Scripture as well in First Corinthians 6. The Bible says that God makes one flesh, those who come together in sexual union. And we are one spirit with the Lord. So finally, he says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The one spirit that we are with the Lord is actually our participation in the Spirit of God. Pursue holiness because the Holy God dwells in our midst. Pursue holiness because we have been bought with a price and we belong to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Pursue holiness because our bodies are destined to be raised with Christ. We will continue to live in bodies that will reflect the incorruptible beauty of the resurrected body of Christ. Continue to pursue holiness because your greatest good, our greatest good as human beings, is to know and be known by the one who loves us, the one who made us. And because God is holy, He makes us holy. Because God is holy, He desires that we be holy. Because God loves us, He desires that we share His own life. 1 Peter chapter 1 comes back to this point. It seems to have been uh, a teaching that the earliest Christians realized, in particular, Gentile converts needed. Because while Jewish life was shaped by the scriptures, And there were Greco-Roman philosophers in Paul's day, in particular the Stoics who prized bodily mastery and self-control. For the most part, the earliest Christians stood out like a sore thumb by the way that they organized their community and the way they used their bodies sexually. And uh, it wasn't easy to live into that. But 1 Peter 1 also um, offers this attractive picture, (laughs) this centered picture It's because of who God is that we are called to holiness. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, Prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he appears. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Notice the similar argument. When you didn't know God, when you didn't know the one who loves you, of course you acted this way, but now... Now that you know you are God's children and children of this God, don't be conformed to your former way of life. Instead, as the one who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you invoke as Father the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, then live in reverent fear during this time of your sojourn as resident aliens." You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without defect or blemish. We are God's children. We are to take on the character of God. And holiness is a way of encapsulating that life of God, with God, as imitators of God. It's not a shift of topic, then, when Paul moves on in verse 9 to talk about brotherly, sisterly love, familial love. Philadelphia, love for the family. This has been given to them as well. The Holy Spirit that God gives to you is also the one, Paul says in Romans 5, who has poured out God's love into your hearts, poured out the love of God not only for us, but the love of God that moves through us to one another. And so, holiness and love are two sides of the coin. Um, one of the one of the symptoms of the the way our discourse, I would say, over the last decades, as we've talked about issues of holiness and sexual expression, and is that we we set holiness and love implicitly, at least, apart from one another, as if we could talk about love without talking about holiness, or that God's holiness somehow is apart from God's deep love for us and desire for our flourishing. So you've been taught by God to love one another. Indeed, you love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. Remember, Paul had said the word of the Lord has gone forth from you into Macedonia and Achaia, not just in word, but through their hospitality, through their deeds of love for others. And so we urge you, beloved, to do so more and more. I think this is a great pastoral strategy. I'm sure you use it often. (laughs) You find something good and you say, keep doing it. As a way of encouraging and also giving the glory to God for what God is doing among us. We urge you to do so more and more. And in this particular context... That love is going to take the form, in verses 11 and 12, of quiet living, minding one's own affairs, working with one's own hands, as we directed you, Paul says. That's not necessarily the first thing I would think of when I thought of what does love look like in the Christian community, but as a word on target for Thessalonica, it appears that, Um, this is, in fact, very practical advice on what loving one another looks like. And I wish we could go into depth about what the situation was in Thessalonica, but we don't have very much evidence, almost none at all, in fact. It might be revealing that in chapter 5, when Paul turns from encouragement only to also some sharp sharper um, directions, he says in, in 5.14 that the community should take on itself the task of admonishing those who are idle or those who are disorderly. It appears that some in the community are perhaps not living quietly and working with their hands. That's about all that we get, though. More than confronting a problem, I think Paul is again reminding them of his own conduct with them. Remember what he said in chapter 2? Remember our example? You remember our labor and toil, brothers and sisters. This is chapter 2, verse 9. We worked night and day so that we might not burden any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. This is immediately following his claim that he was pleased to give his own self to the Thessalonians. The love Paul and his team had for the Thessalonians was instantiated in part by taking care of their needs, their own needs, so as not to be a burden to others. Another clue might come from the statement that, in fact, the love that the Thessalonians are displaying has been directed not just internally, but to all the brothers and sisters throughout hospitality One of the ways that would have been manifested in an early Christian community is through hospitality. As people travel into this busy city, um, they would have sought hospitality with people of the same ethnic group. Um, Christians sought hospitality with one another, even crossing ethnic lines because of their new relationships in Christ. Uh, There's a work that comes probably from the second century, Um, known as the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, the Didache. And um, it crystallizes instructions on community life. There's some really interesting sections there. There's an early uh, set of directions for um, celebrating the Lord's Supper. There are some instructions about how to recognize a false prophet. Um, If a prophet comes and says, let's have a meal, if he eats from it, he's a false prophet. If, he, if the poor eat from it, great, it's true prophet. Um, but the topic in, in Didache chapter 12 of hospitality is also um, thought important enough to, to include in this set of directives. So the author says, Everyone who comes in the name of the Lord should be welcomed. But examine that person, and you will find out, for you will have insight, what is true and what is false. If the one who comes is merely passing through, Assist him as much as you can, but he must not stay with you for more than two or, if necessary, three days. However, if he wishes to settle among you and is a craftsman, let him work for his living. But if he's not a craftsman, decide according to your own judgment how he shall live among you as a Christian, yet without being idle. But if he does not wish to cooperate in this way, if he does not wish to work, then he is trading on Christ. Beware of such people. But every genuine prophet who wishes to settle among you is worthy of his food. Likewise, every genuine teacher is like the worker worthy of his food. So um, there's a at least this must come out of experience, the possibility that someone may not only accept hospitality, but overstay <laughs> that welcome, or burden others by not working. Paul is writing to a fairly small community. It clearly is beleaguered at least by um, the kind of unwelcome attention from family, business associates, neighbors. And Paul is concerned that they live in a way that wins the respect of those outside. Verse 12, this direction to live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands is so that you might behave properly toward outsiders, or another translation, so you may command the respect of those outside your own number and so that you may be dependent on no one. This view toward the outside, I think, is pretty key here. Um, There is, Paul has just said, there are some strict differences in behavior between those inside and outside the community. At the same time, there's an awful lot of common ground. And you ought to be living in a way that even those outside recognize as being of good form, of good appearance, of good reputation. This this advice to to mind one's own business, um, of course, is is kind of timeless advice. Um, It also has a a cultural link, perhaps, um, again with the philosophers. Um, The the cynic philosophers were, uh, at least in the texts that have survived for us, it's almost as if there's a type. In fact, some of of our writings make fun of the cynic. It's a kind of way of dressing uh, hanging around, begging, being sort of the busybody, the expert, the one who is able to to give everybody else advice. You know, you're imagining a, a tight urban context where people are really bumped up against each other very closely. This living in public, as we were talking about last night, shared life. And um, cynics were sometimes uh, taken to heart. Sometimes they were the butt of jokes. Sometimes they could be deeply annoying. Um, It's possible that one of the ways the earliest non-Christian community understood this gathering of Christians is as a kind of a philosophical school of some sort. Um, They may not have recognized worship as much as as the teaching aspect. I mean, after all, there were no idols or images of gods. Um, Paul seems, in a number of places, to want to distinguish his own activity, but also the activity of his people some of whom are proclaiming the good news themselves from that of these philosophers. And um, so these busybodies, these people who actually gave up their craft in order to pursue the life of philosophy, and so who were also recognizable with their beggar's bowl or their satchel. They lived off of public donations. Paul doesn't want there to be any confusion. Outsiders shouldn't think that this is the kind of group that you all are. They are to participate in the society in constructive ways. Um, Plato's advice in the Republic, which gets repeated over and over in the subsequent uh, centuries, is that in the ideal state, those who are of lower social station, who have to work for a living, uh, ought to have their own craft, and they should do their own business, not being a busybody, not interfering with others. The cobblers should do their cobbling and the carpenters should do their carpenting. And um, everyone can live quietly and tend to their own affairs. Almost exactly the language that Paul's using here. So Paul's saying, according to the standards of the pagan world, um, you should should meet and exceed those standards. Focus on living quietly, working with your own hands. Not only so that you're not dependent, but as Paul will elsewhere say, so that you have something to give, so that you have something to share with others. So, referring again to the Wesleyan tradition, John Wesley's famous rules on money, make all you can, give all you can, um, and use that money for God's purposes, for the poor, for the work of spreading the gospel. Well, Live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Work with your hands. Love one another. Live a life of holiness. This, Paul says, is not only God's command. It's something God empowers through the Spirit. And it's something they've not only heard about in words, but they've seen in Paul's own practice. I thought I would end uh, with just um, almost 15 minutes this morning of time, not only for questions, but also uh, just invite some of you all to share ways in which your own ministry has taken advantage of the kind of um, positive call, centered call to be God's people. Um, Part of what I'm thinking of is a conversation I had with Noel this morning, um, talking about youth ministry in which, you know, rather than simply saying, don't use drugs, don't have premarital sex, that that the focus was on, look at this beautiful garden. Get away from the fence. Look at this tree of life in the middle of the garden. Um, A deeply attractive image. Um, I can think of a a church that we were part of in Princeton for some years that were a group of folks who were skilled mechanics that got space in a garage and they took donated cars and they worked on them and then they they fixed them up and gave them to people in the community single moms uh, other people who couldn't afford who needed transportation and couldn't afford it but that car ministry became also then a place of discipleship people learned not only mechanic skills but they worked together and in the context of that working together helped shape one another's lives as Christians we've talked some about intentional communities I'd, i think it'd be interesting to hear what some of the ways in which you, you may already in your communities be uh, bringing together work and life, center, and the call to holiness in life. Go ahead. And we have mics, so we'll run them, run them around. Yeah, please.
1: Well, I appreciate your invitation to share. And as I've said, I do university ministry. And so we're the only church-based university ministry at Chico State that remains. And it's a unique opportunity because most of the parachurch Ministries, although I have huge respect for uh, those ministries, often operate in those bounded ministry settings. They try to pull students out of partying life into a a kind of uh, bounded righteousness life. And it gives us an opportunity as grace-focused, Reformed Christians to really say, hey, like, step step closer to Jesus with us. And it's fascinating, even in all Discover, as I get to know my students, some of—we have students who kind of are refugees from the other campus ministries that find us and be like, oh, like— I can be a normal college student and mess up and find grace at this church. And so it's really a beautiful thing that we've tried to build. And I thank you for quoting uh, Hebert. I actually used that when I was interviewing for this job in campus ministry years ago. So the whole bounded and centered set thing is really helpful. I do have one question for you that I want, because uh, I think for a lot of us, you've helped us uh, shape our understanding of Paul. And what stuck out to me is, is your suggestion that, Paul is actually being continuous with Hebrew texts and Second Temple tradition to kind of present more of a virtue ethic approach instead of a strict legalistic righteousness, which we've caricatured you know, the Hebrew perspective on. So in another conversation at this conference, we were talking about the Old Testament term tzedakah and this idea of a righteous man and all that. So could you help just kind of build this bridge from an Old Testament oh. virtue tradition that's not just Follow the Torah, but more like live a life of righteousness,
0: in okay. a virtue sense, and how Paul carries that out a little. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'd love to hear more about the campus ministry too, because I, I was shaped in a local church campus ministry that very much invited us into life. Um, it's a, it's a it's wonderful. Um, you know, I'm going to sketch in really broad terms. This one of the exciting things about the studying the period when Paul is working is that there's There's a tremendous amount of creativity in um, the contact of different cultures. So um, you read someone like Paul or contemporary Jews who are active in the diaspora, in the the Greco-Roman world, and they're they're acquainted with Greek philosophy. They know their own texts, um, even within the land itself, um, even in writing in Hebrew, the Dead Sea... Uh, have all kinds of influence from ideas elsewhere. So um, it's really not possible in any strict way to sort of determine this is Old Testament influence versus versus this is Greek and Roman ideas. It's interesting to compare them, but I'm not sure people saw them always as coming from separate places. And that's in part because you see this in the book of Proverbs uh, in Ecclesiastes, within the canon, you see it as well in Second Temple texts that are in the, the Deutero canon, like the wisdom of Jesus Ben Sirach, or in wisdom of Solomon. But there's this increasing um, correlation between the wisdom that God has given Israel in Torah, and here I'm, I'm actually thinking of Deuteronomy itself also, and the wisdom that's evident in the world, so that Torah is more than simply wisdom, but it's not less. And in fact, to be a truly wise and just person, as Greeks and Romans aspire to, Jews would say, well, wisdom is in Torah. In fact, the the key thing is um, to have God be the center of life and of one's pursuit for wisdom. And what you all speak about is reason or the God or the gods. You know, we know (laughs) it's this God who has come near to us, delivered us from Egypt and called us to be God's people. Um. So I think there is a a talk of virtue. It takes on a a really different color when one is talking about the God of Israel or the God of Jesus Christ. But there's an awful lot of points of contact as well. And normally the claim of Jews and Christians in the first century is not that the pagan moralists are wrong. It's that we actually do what you talk about. We live the way that you aspire to live. Um, but But two notable places where... Um, Second Temple Judaism, and I would say the New Testament pretty clearly as well, sets itself over against the pagan world. I use mean, pagan in that sense of not Jewish, not Christian, is in the area of worship and in the area of uh, moral- sexual morality. There's not a whole lot of contact there, although there are these philosophical um, voices raised to talk about the, the self-mastery. Um, the, the triumph of reason over the passions, but both insiders and outsiders in the ancient world recognize this as a point of, two points of conflict, um, over the gods and over the um, use of one's body. The um, late second century apology, known as the Letter to Diognetus, has this. Um, line that's often quoted, he says, it says you can't tell Christians by their, dis- they don't have a, an odd way of life. They live everywhere, um, in every city, and, but they live as if they are resident aliens. And where they are strange is, um, like others, they marry and have children, but they don't expose their children once born. And then secondly, they share their food, but they don't share their beds. <laughs> um, and, and that's, that's interesting. Um, that 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 is something that caught. But as I say, it's it's an ideal as well. In the fourth century, Chrysostom is hammering away at this uh, with uh, with actually a courage that I find admirable, as well as um, yeah, convicting personally as well. That, Boston, <laughs> yeah. <All> right <laughs> Great. Uh, back back over there. Yeah. yeah. Oh. oh, sorry. Well, uh, he's got a mic, and then we'll pass it back. How's that?
1: Um, Ross, I was just looking at verse four. Uh-huh. What, what's going on there? There seems to be a whole lot of
0: flavors to that, and I'm wondering how you um, see oh, it. Oh, yeah. Sorry, very... you, you let me off the hook. Uh, I was hoping to get off the hook. What in the world is Paul saying here? That there, along with the passage we talked about yesterday about the wrath of God falling on the Jews, this is the other place in First Thessalonians where. Um, there's a lot of discussion among scholars. Um, Paul says that each of you should know or learn how to something his own something. <laughs> and the problem is, um, as often in la- language, you know, words mean in context. And so there's a verb and there's a noun. And exactly how they go together is somewhat difficult. So the verb means, normally it means to acquire something to come into possession of something. Um, and it's, I mean, for, for those of you who care, it's in the aorist, so that would tend to affirm that it's probably coming into possession of something. In the perfect, it can mean to be an owner of or to possess something. And so—and there's a legitimate discussion about how, in what context might that word shift from come into possession to possess. And then the second thing is he talks about a vessel, us what is he talking about there? I mean, a vessel with a pot, a container. And you can find parallels um, in Paul's own writing for that as a way of talking about the body. We have, we have this amazing treasure of Christ in earthen vessels, he says in 1 Corinthians 4. That's his, his mortal body, an earthen vessel. Um, 1 Peter chapter 3 says that husbands ought to honor their wives as the weaker vessel. More delicate, fragile pot. I don't know what the image is. That's also a, it's difficult because that's also a disputed text in terms of trying to understand what it means. Um, So, us could be a way of talking about the body. Um, Some have suggested it's a euphemism for the male sexual organ. It's possible. Um, There aren't great parallels for that, but it's possible. And then the third is that it's um, a way of talking about not one's body, but one's wife. And there is no exact parallel in Greek for that, although the verb can be used for acquiring a wife, but there it's acquiring a a gune, a woman. So the commentators have been split since the patristic period, and the two major options are that Paul is talking about controlling one's own body, or Paul is talking about acquiring a wife in holiness and honor, Uh, or perhaps living with one's wife in holiness and honor. And those seem to me to be the two most likely interpretations and since I'm not, since I'm a teacher who can say there's this and here's that, I won't try to decide for you. Um, The NRSV sides with body. So each of you should learn to possess, that is be in control of, your own body in holiness and honor. And um, other translations, and I, don't, I only have two here in my edition, but others go with, each of you should learn how to take a wife or live with a wife in holiness and honor. And you can find good parallels within Scripture for both of those. So yes, we have to conduct ourselves in holiness, um, honoring others in the way that we use our bodies. Um, but also the concern then within marriage, that there be mutual honor, and especially in this culture, that husbands honor their wives. And conduct themselves in holiness because not to do so would be to dishonor and defraud and cheat one's wife as well as other members of the community. So thanks for not letting me get away with that. But um, if you preach on the text, you probably have to decide. But I don't know. I mean, this, so this, maybe this could be a, a conversation uh, around the table. Um, does a preacher always have to decide? Or can one do, this is a move I find in the church fathers more often. Here's a reading, and here's a reading. And they both have good roots elsewhere in Scripture, so I'm just going to preach both of them. I may not know what exactly Paul meant, but when we read this letter in the larger scope of what God has given us, then, yeah, here are both please.
2: Yeah, thank you, Ross. Uh, you know, you have been talking about holiness a lot, as Paul is, and you know, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, and I take it that that word sanctified and holiness are hagios. Yeah, or they come
0: from the same root, yeah.
2: And, but it's interesting, I, maybe you can bring any, uh, there's a lot of dimensions to that. Is that an act of God, or is that our act that we step into? It's kind of like faith, uh, um, is this set apart for a particular purpose? Is this, hmm. you know, the, the Wesleyans try to talk about perfectionism, and um, you don't want to, you want to be sanctified, but you don't want to be sanctimonious right, in life, right, you know? Right, yeah. And uh, I, I have such a hard time with the term and defining it to hmm. other people as well as for myself. So maybe you can give us some of your own insights on how you see it.
0: Yeah, thank you. I agree that um, figuring out a good translation for that in our own day and age—that's not either weird or off-putting—is a real challenge, um, because we don't. I mean, we don't normally experience life as holy or shot through with holiness. Um, C.S. Lewis has a novel that I love, and I think I'm starting to understand after reading it a few different times. Um, it's called *Till We Have Faces*. It's—it's it's one of these. I think is beyond me, but I keep reading it, trying to be drawn into it. Um, but he has a he has a, the hero is a heroine, um, worships in a traditional, pagan cult, and the, uh, the object of worship is a meteorite that's fallen to ground to the ground, and it's in this very dark, uh, setting, dark temple, and it's covered with blood, and and you know that encounter with, with this this dark foreign bloody object that reeks of sacrifice, um, she describes as, that is holy. You know, That's holiness. Um, and I think those kinds of experiences, I mean, for me, probably the closest I've come to something like that is outdoors, um, encountering some tremendous waterfall or huge canyon or something like that. Sometimes, um, maybe we have experiences listening to a piece of music or encountering a piece of art or entering a cathedral but I, I do think our experience of holiness and our terror and attraction, uh, yeah, those are, those are things I struggle to get a handle on. Um, and I think James K. A. Smith and others have written much more insightfully and compellingly about that. Um, so there's already a challenge. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, we're, we're living after two millennia of Christianity, and we can see all kinds of ways in which sanctimoniousness <laughs> come to dominate um, Christian life. Um, very unattractive pictures of, especially though, I mean, you know, the, 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 the sort of typical figure in literature is not just the person who's living a holy life, but actually the person who's talking about it and not living it. I mean, it's that hypocrisy that so plagues us. Um, yeah, so where do we go with that? I think I, I, the, the best expositions I've seen of holiness um, seem to emphasize the, the two movements. It's separation from, but it's separation to. Um, and, and so that centered set speaks to me that in order to get to God, there will be things I leave behind. And yes, to be God's is to not. Off the top of my head, I mean, marriage is actually an interesting metaphor. In order to have a relationship with this woman, um, I forsake all others. And I couldn't continue to grow in the relationship I have with my wife if I don't leave in order to cleave. That's awful rhyme, but there it works. Um, and yeah, the perfectionism, um, its there's big arguments about how to interpret John Wesley, but I think it's, it's notable and important um, that he talks about being made perfect in love. When he's talking about perfection, it's to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Because for Wesley, love is what it means to be human. It's what it means to be reconciled to God. So it often gets spun into, well, I don't smoke and I don't drink and I don't date girls who do. But it's for Wesley, it's to be perfect in love. And uh, and he hedges that, especially later on. He gets a lot more careful about, you know, there's all kinds of errors we still fall into. But but what he desires is a heart that wants to do God's will and that doesn't willingly step away from God. So if we define it that way, um, I think it's good. But, I mean, the whole question is a really good reminder that we can't just keep using words because we've inherited them. Um, Not for ourselves, because we may not actually understand what we're talking about, but certainly not for those who aren't schooled in and and formed in the tradition we're formed in. Um, We just end up talking like complete foreigners to the very people we want to reach.